A very good morning to you all. Uh, let me, it's really nice to be able to do this, to be able to welcome uh, Tim and Caroline Saw and Betty Newsom and Kate Snitch, who've all become uh, members of the church at the last, uh, the last meeting that we had. Uh, it's lovely to welcome you all. And if anyone else is here is, is interested in membership, it's not some kind of strange secret society, it's just a way that we love and care for each other, actually, uh, then please do ask one of the elders about that if you're interested. Let's, uh, let's pray before we look at this together. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenges that are in it uh, and for the wonderful stories uh, of the things that Jesus did and said. Lord, we pray that there'll be more than just stories to us this morning. We pray that uh, your word would come alive in our hearts by the power of your spirit. Lord, speak to us, challenge us, rebuke us where we need to be rebuked, especially where faith is concerned. Lord, may we uh, be refined by the trials of life to have stronger and stronger faith in you. Uh, and we pray that for ourselves this morning in your name. Amen. Well, perhaps you've heard of uh, King Canute the Great. There's a nice picture of him up there. I mean, it's quite a uh, list of achievements he's got there. King of England, King of Denmark, and King of Norway uh, by his death. Uh, and, and yet, well, how much do we know uh, about him, really? We found a few coins with him on them. Uh, he's a real man, really, really did the things that he did. Uh, in fact, he was, he was a very impressive ruler. He, um, his grandfather was Harold Bluetooth, from which the Bluetooth things that you have on your phone actually get their name, funnily enough, because he was a man who united all of the, uh, the tribes in Denmark and brought Christianity to Denmark and put Denmark under the Christian faith. It's amazing, isn't it? Amazing heritage that this man had. Well, in the 12th century, uh, uh, listen, to get, by the way, to get the name The Great after you as a king is pretty cool, isn't it? Uh, it means you have to have done something pretty special. And funnily enough, most of, the, I was thinking about this, most of the, the greats uh, amongst royalty have been Christian men, which is quite something, isn't it? But in the 12th century, Henry of Huntingdon uh, wrote a number of stories about Canute, so just shortly after his life. Here's a retelling of one that you might know. So are you sitting comfortably? I've got this out from a children's book, so listen. Long ago, England was ruled by a king named Canute. Like many leaders and men of power, Canute was surrounded by people who were always praising him. Every time he walked into a room, the flattery began. You are the greatest man that ever lived, one would say. Oh, king, there can never be another as mighty as you, another would insist. Your highness, there is nothing you cannot do, someone would smile. Great Canute, you are the monarch of all, another would sing. Nothing in this world dares to disobey you. Well, the king was a man of sense, and he grew tired of hearing such foolish speeches. One day, he was walking by the seashore, and his officers and courtiers were with him, praising him as usual. Canute decided to teach them a lesson. So you say I am the greatest man in the world, he asked them. Oh, oh, king, they cried, there has never been anyone as mighty as you, and there never will be anyone so great ever again. And you say all things obey me, Canute asked. Absolutely, they said. The world bows before you and gives you honor. I see, the king answered. In that case, bring me my chair and we will go down to the water. At once, your majesty. They scrambled to carry his royal chair over the sands. 
bring it closer to the sea, Canute called. Put it right here, right at the water's edge. He sat down and surveyed the ocean before him. I notice the tide is coming in. Do you think it will stop if I give it the command? His officers were puzzled, but they did not dare say no. Give the order, O great king, and it will obey, one of them assured him. Very well. See, cried Canute. I command you to come no further. Waves, stop your rolling. Surf, stop your pounding. Do not dare touch my feet. He waited a moment, quietly, and a tiny wave rushed up the sand and lapped at his feet. How dare you, Canute shouted. Ocean, turn back now. I have ordered you to retreat before me, and now you must obey. Go back. And in answer, another wave swept forward and curled around the king's feet. The tide came in just as it always did. The water rose higher and higher. It came around the king's chair and wet not only his feet but also his robe. His officers stood before him, alarmed and wondering whether he might not be mad. Well, my friends, Canute said, it seems I do not have quite so much power as you would have me believe. Perhaps you have learned something today. Perhaps you will now remember that there is only one king who is all-powerful, and it is he who rules the sea and holds the ocean in the hollow of his hand. I suggest you reserve your praises for him. The royal officers and courtiers hung their heads and looked foolish, and some say Canute took off his crown soon afterwards and never wore it again. Obviously, there's license to that story, an artistic license in a children's book. This is Henry Huntingdon's account, how he ends it. Just listen to this. He says, Then the king leapt backwards, saying, Let all men know how empty and worthless is the power of kings, for there is none worthy of the name but he whom heaven, earth, and sea obey by eternal laws. He then hung his gold crown on a crucifix, And he never again wore it to the honour of God, the Almighty King. Amazing, isn't it? This story, I mean, this story of King Canute, it just shows the genius and the humility of that king, if there's any truth to it. What better way to remind people of your limitations than to sit before the sea and to shout commands at the sea? It's great, great story, isn't it? And it struck me this week just how powerful this incident in Mark's Gospel is. It's tremendously powerful, this story. Perhaps this is another story that we know so well and we've told so many times that the the sheer magnitude of it actually escapes us. It goes over our heads. See, the Sea of Galilee sits around 700 feet below sea level. It's got an area of about 64 square miles. It's surrounded by steep steep hills. It's in like a basin. And as I understand it, the sort of the cool air blows over those hills off of the Mediterranean Sea, and then it hits the warm air coming up off of the Sea of Galilee, and they they mix together, and you get these tremendous, sudden, powerful storms that whip up the surface of the lake. Now, see, you can fake a lot of things, can't you? There's dozens of people out there, even today, who will make bold claims about things they can do, being able to heal the sick and make the blind see, even some of them saying they can raise the dead. But you'll never see them command the waves (laughs) or tell the the tide to turn. As the evangelist Rico Tice was often uh, fond of saying, I can't even command the water in my bath to be still. And that's true of all of us, isn't it? 
This is a command in this story over nature that's on a whole other level, isn't it, from what we've seen from Jesus so far in one sense. Take a look at the story here in verse 35. Just look down with me. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. Now, let me just set the scene for you, because the day, this day has probably started in the house where Jesus had that confrontation with the religious leaders who were accusing him of collaborating with Beelzebub, the prince of demons. That's an adrenaline-filled conversation right there, isn't it? Uh, and there'd not been enough room in the house for them to even grab a bite to eat. They'd been working flat out. And even if they could have uh, had a meal, the demands on Jesus for teaching and for ministry and for dealing with those accusations would have occupied all of his time and energy anyway. And so finally, Mark tells us, they managed to escape out onto the beach and they managed to, to get a little bit of space between them. But clearly, those who'd not been able to get into the house while he'd been there all now thronged onto the beach. And you had this stupendous crowd there, so huge that Jesus has to wisely get into a boat and, and push the boat a bit out from the shore so that people can't fall on him anymore like they were doing. And so it was, says verse 35 there, that evening came as he's teaching. And as the light starts to fade, Jesus finishes up his parables, apparently, and he directs the disciples to head over to the other side of the lake. And that's a smart move, isn't it, after a day like that? I mean, how else are you going to get any space between you and what's going on? Physically, you see, Jesus was, was mortally, as a human being, just like you and me. He was, he was frail and, and weak as a human being, like we are. He had his limits. We all have our limits. Who knows how long and for how many days Jesus has kept up this pace of ministry. Absolutely exhausting. He needed rest. And so leaving the crowds behind, there's relief at last. Just him and his disciples in the boat with the water just gently lapping at the side of the boat. They pull up anchor. They head out into the blue sea. It's a lovely sort of scene. It's a restful it's a restful kind of scene, isn't it? About five miles of water lay between them and, as Mark tells us, a little flotilla of boats that are coming along, along with him, heading into the calm of the lake. It's tranquil, isn't it? And as soon as they head out, we read that Jesus has, has basically, he's, he's, put his, he's found a cushion, hasn't he? And he's collapsed onto that cushion. He's probably asleep before his head even hits the pillow. He will be physically shattered. But it turns out all he has time for is a short power nap here. Because even without a pause, Mark tells us in verse 37, look, a furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was there in the stern, sleeping on a cushion, and the disciples woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? It was one of those storms I was telling you about earlier, one of those ones that comes unexpectedly sweeping over the lake. Now, at least four of Jesus' disciples, remember, they are seasoned career fishermen who have fished on this lake. They know the lake. They're used to the, the tempestuous nature of the lake. But it's not long, is it, before even they are losing their nerves. This is a ferocious storm. The boat's starting to take on water. The violent waves are breaking over the sides 
and they're starting to get afraid. It's a long way from land. You can't swim for it, not easily. The water is deep, very deep in that lake. The boat's getting swamped. They're going down. Where's their master? Now, he's always calm and in control, isn't he, Jesus? He always knows what to do and what to say. What should they do? Where is he? And amazingly, so tired, so shattered is Jesus. He slept through it all. They actually have to shake him awake in the storm. Rough hands grab him and start to shake him. And with panic in their voices, they say, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Verse 39, it's a simple response, isn't it? He got up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. Can you picture it all? Amidst the chaos, the howling wind, the crashing waves, Jesus gets up and just speaks a small, short, punchy command to the wind and to the waves. Quiet, be still. Silence, the word is, is be muzzled. Put a sock in it. And though the waves might have paid no heed to Canute the Great, they certainly, they certainly don't try it on with Jesus, do they? In an instant, it's calm. It's the calm of a mill pond, it seems. You know, all three of the synoptic gospels that report this story all make this point that it is a sudden calm in the way that they structure the sentence. It's a sudden thing. The great waves, they've been towering above them, so instantly they flatten off. The wind stops and, and it's just a calm breeze. An eerie calm descends on the lake. Four, I did the maths, four million litres, according to Wikipedia, of turbulent water cease their violent activity and dare not put a molecule out of place at the simple command of this man, Jesus. That's what happened. Staggering miracle, isn't it? It defies the natural order. Jesus has overruled creation, bent the physical laws to his will. You can't do that by any man-made physical force. An atom bomb can't do that. In verse 40, look, he says to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. It's quite some story, isn't it? Clearly, the disciples were afraid for their lives in the midst of the storm. But Mark saves the expression of utter terror for this last verse, doesn't he? What Jesus has just done leaves them more terrified than when they thought they were going to die just earlier. Never have they seen such a display of unopposed authority. The only one who could possibly have authority over creation like that is the one that made it. He's the one that made it. And they ask the right question, don't they, if you look? Who is this? Who is this? Who is this? Now, any good Jew knew their scriptures and could answer that question. Uh, they, could, they could answer it, but could, could they grasp it, I think, is the point. You know, in the story of Job... Uh, at the end of the book, God asks Job a whole load of challenging questions that he, he, just, he stands dumbfounded because he can't answer. Here's some of it, what, what uh, God says to Job. 
God says, who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no further, here is where your proud waves halt. That's God, isn't it? That's the awesome, powerful creator God. Now, we've just come to, actually, finally, to the end of the first quarter of this book, as we're just working by by chapters, Mark's book. And you'll remember that that is the exact question that Mark wants you to grapple with. He wants the reader to grapple with this. Who is this man? Who do you think he is? Here we see Jesus doing what only God can do. It's plain as day. And yet he stands there tired and weary in a frail human body like the rest of us. It's some kind of strange contradiction, isn't it? Who is this? Who is this? Mark insists. Mark insists up front, doesn't he? In the first verse of the book, that this is the Christ, the Son of God. Do you remember? But what do you think? What do you think? It's the only conclusion that makes sense of the facts here in this story. And if it's true then the whole of creation, including you and I, should be bowing to him in humble obedience. We should be, no question. Why would you want to stand up in rebellion against one that mighty, that powerful? Like King Canute, we should put him in his rightful place in our lives, certainly. He is the saviour with power and authority. He's shown it, hasn't he? Authority to cleanse you, to forgive your sins. He's the Son of God with authority to give you everlasting life in his everlasting kingdom that will one day fill the world. He only asks that you give your life to him and trust him. Trust him. Invite him in. There's no saviour like Jesus. And, And if any story teaches that powerfully, it's this one. No one saves like Jesus. You know, even if you are faced with the, that, that final dark cloud and storm of death, he's the one you want with, it, with you, isn't he? He's the one that will see you through even a storm like that. Even death itself. And certainly the judgment that comes after. Well, I want to apply this story further in, in two ways this morning, in what time we've got left. Two lessons. And the first is a word of comfort and encouragement for us. And the second is a word of rebuke for us as God's people. Listen, this storm is a great metaphor, isn't it? I I hope you've picked it up already. The storm is a great metaphor for the things that, that come at us in our lives, the troubles, the trials, the difficulties, the sufferings that we endure. And I don't know what yours are, and you probably don't know what mine are, but we all have these storms that hit us, don't we? Maybe you're going through that right now. You know, the first lesson is this. God preserves his people through the storms. The early church fathers clearly taught this from this very story. This was their big point. Uh, You know, in those first centuries we were talking about, just before Athanasius came onto the scene, uh, Christians were persecuted and hounded. Christianity became legalized in the Roman Empire in 313 AD. That's the council, the Edict of Milan. But previously, nearly three centuries previously, 
were full of suffering for God's people. They were hit by wave after wave of persecution against God's people. Sometimes it, it would just look like a displacement. They would get shoved out of a city they were living in. They have to leave their homes and their families and friends, and they would have to go and live somewhere else. Imagine what that's like, being displaced. And many of God's people are displaced even today, aren't they? Made to run from their homes. Other times, it, they might be rounded up and executed for the entertainment of the public and the Roman circuses. But the great teachers of the church reminded them over and over again with stories such as this, that with Christ in the vessel, you can, you can smile at the storm as you go sailing home. Did you remember singing that maybe as a child? When Christ is in his church, is with his church, they will survive. They will survive. And he says, behold, I am with you to the very end of the age. He's promised that. That's a promise. He's always going to be with us. And if he is with us, we will weather the storm. That's the truth. And so they needed to be reminded over and over again what a tremendous comfort it was to God's people and always has been. So listen, whatever you're going through at the moment, if Jesus is with you, he'll bring you through it. Don't take my word for it. Trust him. See, it doesn't matter what it is, and that's the point here. Get the magnitude of this. He is the creator and the sustainer of all things. He has absolute authority. He holds the fabric of the universe together. No storm will be too much for him to handle. He can simply speak a word, and everything will comply with what he says. It's reasonable to assume, isn't it, that Mark's gospel contains the eyewitness account of this particular event from Peter, probably the one steering the boat at this very time, probably the one shaking Jesus awake. It was here in this boat that Peter started to learn his storm theology. Now, he didn't completely get it at this point, but eventually the penny really did drop for the apostle. If God is really that powerful, and if Jesus is really always with us to the end of the age, then listen, this is what he writes to, a dis to the displaced people who've been displaced by a persecution. He writes this to them. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Did you catch what he's saying there? He's, he's, he's explaining why these trials come and, and the good that they do. If Jesus really is on the throne of the universe, commanding all things, calling all the shots then not only will you weather the storms of life, but in doing so, you will come to realize that every storm actually has a purpose, a good purpose for you. There are no meaningless storms in your life. That is a staggering thought. No suffering is meaningless for the believer. The storms will prove the genuineness of our faith. And they will result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. That is incredibly comforting, I find. I hope you do too. 
Here's the second point then. I want you to hear the rebuke as we finish up. I want you to hear this rebuke. Do you still have no faith? There's no getting around it, you see. Verse 40 is a strong rebuke from Jesus. Look at it. I mean, they have shaken him awake saying, don't you care? (laughs) That's pretty harsh, isn't it? And in verse 40, Jesus says to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? The word used here for being afraid is timidity. Why are you so timid? Why are you so scared? Why are you being so cowardly? That's what Jesus is asking. Is the reason that you have no faith? You still have no faith. Have you been with me this long? Seen and heard all and heard all that I've done, and you still don't trust me. That you would shake me awake with the words, don't you care? Now that might seem a little harsh. I mean, put yourself into the sandals of the disciples. They they were in a boat and Jesus was asleep. I mean, it looked like Jesus didn't even know what was going on. Didn't you know like he wasn't even aware of their precarious situation. Did he know just how dicey things had got before they shook him awake? But surely that misses the point. Surely the deeper lesson here is that, you know, it is easy to say, isn't it, that, that you trust Jesus when you're relaxing in that lovely boat with a calm sea and the sun shining down on you and the waves lapping around it and all is peaceful and calm and all is good. Easy to say, I trust Jesus then. But when things get really frightening, that's when the disciples doubted. They doubted both his concern for them and his capability to do anything about it. They're full of doubt. It's when things get difficult that we doubt, isn't it? See, it's easy to believe when the miraculous is happening around you. When, when the, the blind are being made to see and the lame are walking. But it's much harder when God seems silent. When it appears like he's not acting. Is he asleep? What is he doing? But the truth is that the Lord is always with his people. Sometimes, though, his presence will be hidden. Those are really hard times aren't they? It's when the miracles do not occur. It's when the heavens are like brass and our prayers seem unheeded that Christ still calls you to trust him. He says to you, do you still have no faith? Trust me. And perhaps you need to hear that this morning. Perhaps the waves of life are pounding on you at the moment. Perhaps your faith has grown weak. Perhaps that's you. I'm told that uh, flying a plane on a clear day, when it's calm and it's sunny, and I quote, is a piece of cake. I've never done it, but they say it is. But frequently, those are not the conditions in which aircraft are flying, especially if you're a military pilot. You've got to fly in all kinds of conditions. As part of their training, apparently, an instructor will do their best to uh, confuse and to disorientate a trainee pilot. Sounds dangerous if you're in the plane with him, doesn't it? But that is to to prepare them for the severe 
storms and the adverse conditions that they will face. So the trainer will take them into conditions with poor to zero visibility. And they'll take them through a sequence of manoeuvres that are designed to, 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 to confuse them, to bring on a state called vertigo, where you can't tell what's up and what's down anymore. Where one wrong move can put the plane into a catastrophic spin. At that point, all the pilots can rely on is their instruments the GPS, the altimeter, the gyroscope, all of those things, they will still be and always will be reliable. Looking at them, trusting them, will bring the pilot safely through the danger. Never forget the most reliable navigational instrument that we have. The word of God, his word of promise, his word that can't be broken. Brother, sister, you can trust Jesus. You can trust him. And not because I say so, what do I know? But because he has promised to be with you. And if he is with you, the maker, the sustainer of all things, you can smile at the storm as you go sailing home. Let's pray.